The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In 2017, 24-year-old Nebraskan Sydney Loof was ecstatic after a successful first date with a woman she met on Tinder and couldn't wait for a second. Her dream match, however, wasn't who she was claiming to be, and her intentions for their second date were anything but romantic. Join me now as we take a look at the disturbing disappearance of Sydney Loof. You'll hear how a pair of antique thieves created a bizarre sex cult, luring young women into their twisted life of crime, witchcraft, torture, and murder. On September 15, 2017, Sydney Loof was happier than she'd been in a long time. In fact, her co-workers couldn't help but notice her beaming mood the moment she arrived at work at Menards, a home improvement store in Lincoln, Nebraska. Most of them were aware Sydney had been struggling with an ongoing battle with depression, but it seemed as though things were starting to look up. She had a new prescription for antidepressants that seemed to be working, and she'd also decided to quit smoking marijuana. But it was something else putting an extra bounce in her step that day. She'd met someone, a 25-year-old woman named Audrey, that is, according to her Tinder profile. The two women had been matched on the dating app and began messaging each other on November 11th. As the women got to know each other, they threw around a few ideas for a possible first date. Audrey suggested going to a casino and then out for a fancy dinner, but when they met up on the 14th, they ended up just cruising around Lincoln where Sydney lived in Audrey's car, smoking pot and getting to know each other better. At first, Sydney told Audrey she was trying to quit smoking, but quickly gave in and said she wasn't about to pass up smoking with a gorgeous girl. She even offered Audrey cash to buy some, but Audrey wouldn't accept Sydney's offer, answering she had both plenty of money and weed. As far as Sydney was concerned, their first date was going really well, and she believed she'd met the perfect woman. Sydney told one friend, Tara, she'd just finished chilling with a super cute girl. She was elated and couldn't wait to see Audrey again, but was also a bit apprehensive. From past experiences on Tinder, Sydney discovered many women seeking other women on Tinder were secretly just trying to find a woman willing to join a threesome with a man. But Sydney desperately hoped Audrey was different. While chatting with Tara, Sydney confided she hoped Audrey didn't have a boyfriend and admitted she hadn't asked. Just before Sydney headed to bed that evening, her phone chimed with a message from Audrey that said, Good night, gorgeous. The following morning, on November 15th, Tara messaged Sydney to let her know she could extend her 12 to 6 p.m. shift at Menards if she wanted to make some extra money. 
but Sydney said she couldn't because she'd made plans. A second date with Audrey. About 20 minutes after starting her shift at Menards, her phone chimed with another message from Audrey, asking her how her day was going. Everyone could tell by Sydney's demeanor, it was turning out to be a great day for her. After work, Sydney drove home to her apartment and started to get ready for her second date with Audrey. After putting on a lacy white top and a cream-colored Columbia zip-up fleece, Sydney used her phone to take a Snapchat selfie with the caption, Ready for my date. She sent the photo to her mother and some of her friends. In the picture, Sydney looks at the camera with wide-open eyes beneath raised eyebrows, a coy, close-lipped smile revealing small dimples in her cheeks. It's a look that says, Here I go, wish me luck. As Audrey arrived to pick up Sydney at 7 p.m. for their second date, Sydney hopped into the car, excited and hopeful for another great night. She couldn't have been more wrong. The small Nebraskan town of Neely is about a two-and-a-half-hour drive northwest of Lincoln. Home to only 2,000 residents, the bucolic Midwestern town embodies the spirit of Americana like a Norman Rockwell painting. Surrounded by thousands of acres of the most productive and fertile farmland on earth, the town's website boasts it's not too small to have it all and it's where Sidney Luce's family called home. Sidney's mother Susie had been a special education teacher for 19 years at Neely Oakdale High School where Sidney graduated in 2011. Her father, George, was the principal. Even after Sydney moved away to the college town of Lincoln, she remained extremely close with her parents, and they spoke her message nearly every day. On the night of November 15th, Susie was surprised to see Sydney's Snapchat saying she was ready for a date. She took a screenshot of the snap, knowing full well it annoyed her children when she did that, and replied, You didn't tell me that you had a date but Sydney never responded. The following evening on November 16th, Susie began receiving alarming messages from Sydney's friends, saying she'd failed to show up for work without calling in, something completely out of character for Sydney. It became even more worrisome when after a full day, still no one had been able to get in touch with her. That's when Susie decided to call the Lincoln Police Department and report Sydney missing. Although Sydney had been missing for less than 24 hours, several other people had also contacted Lincoln Police and they proceeded to conduct a welfare check at her apartment. When police arrived, they discovered Sydney's SUV parked in the driveway and all the lights on. The front door was also locked. However, after gaining entry through an unlocked window, officers found no signs of Sydney. When Sydney's parents got to her apartment, they made a discovery that indicated to them that something was very wrong. Sydney's makeup bag was still on her bed with her eyeglasses inside. Because she wore contacts that needed to be removed each night, they knew if she was planning to be away for a night or two, she wouldn't have left her glasses at home. Even more alarming was that Sydney's cat had been left without food or water. Sydney loved animals, almost to a fault and would never neglect her cat like that. With alarm bells now officially ringing, officers ran a trace on Sydney's phone. 
The last ping on November 15th was off a tower in Wilbur, a town about 40 miles southwest of Lincoln. But one of Sydney's closest friends was already one step ahead of the police. Brooklyn McChrystal used to work with Sydney and had heard about her disappearance through mutual friends and former co-workers. On the day Sydney failed to show up for work, Brooklyn tried unsuccessfully to contact Sydney before reaching out to Sydney's younger sister, Mackenzie. She wanted to know if Mackenzie had any information about the woman Sydney had met on Tinder. Mackenzie sent Brooklyn a photo of Audrey's Tinder profile. With the Tinder photo now in hand, Brooklyn had a plan. Creating a fake Tinder profile with the express purpose of locating Audrey. If she could track down Audrey, maybe she could find Sydney. Sure enough, her plan worked. When she finally found Audrey, she swiped right and hoped for the best. The very next day, she had a match. Feigning interest, Brooklyn began messaging Audrey through the app and was able to get her phone number, which she quickly turned over to police. Although the number turned out to be a fake number created through a privacy app called Pinger, investigators were eventually able to discover the actual phone number, but it didn't belong to anyone named Audrey. Instead, it belonged to a 23-year-old woman named Bailey Boswell. Once investigators tracked down the phone number and found the linked address, they arrived at Bailey's apartment in Wilbur, Nebraska on November 18th to perform a welfare check. It also just so happened to be the last place Sydney's cell phone pinged before being permanently shot off on the night of her disappearance. 23-year-old Bailey shared an apartment with 51-year-old Aubrey Trail, her boyfriend, when police spoke to their landlords, they claimed the couple were fantastic tenants who always paid the rent on time and even sometimes in advance. But on November 16th, there was one very odd thing they noticed. The day after Sydney had vanished, a remarkably strong smell of bleach coming from their apartment. In fact, it was so strong, it made one of the landlords sick. The following day, Police arrived with a search warrant and entered the apartment. Although they found no traces of Sydney, they could see the apartment had been thoroughly cleaned with bleach. In the days following her disappearance, Sydney's family created a Finding Sydney Lou Facebook page that quickly gained over 25,000 followers, desperately searching for any information that might lead to her safe return. They also released a missing persons poster with her picture and description. Five foot seven inches, 135 pounds, blonde hair and blue eyes, several distinguishing tattoos, a yin-yang symbol on her forearm, the word believe on her wrist, and the song lyric, everything will be wonderful someday, on the inside of her bicep. On the 28th of November, Bailey and Aubrey were officially listed as persons of interest for the disappearance of Sidney Loof. However, they were nowhere to be found, and police began a manhunt to find the couple that were now on the run. The search for the fugitive couple took a bizarre twist when they suddenly began uploading videos of themselves to the Finding Sidney Loof Facebook page professing their innocence. You've already crucified us in the newspapers. You've already crucified us on Facebook. 
You know, in America, I sure thought it was a trial first, but I guess not. You've heard all of this stuff about my criminal history. All true. Been convicted of bad checks and forgery and all that good stuff. But never been convicted of anything like, uh, I guess I'm a person of interest on now. And oh yeah, the uh, Lincoln Police Department failed to tell you that me and Bailey do about $100,000 a year business in antiques on um, eBay, the antique malls in Lincoln, Omaha, all this stuff. Uh, they they will have you believe that I'm still just a criminal running around. Uh, so uh, this has pretty much cost me my life, and uh, I appreciate that from the Lincoln Police Department and the FBI and all those other agencies. But uh, I pray for Sydney. I hope she's found soon. Um, I wish the family the best. Uh, I'm sorry that she wasn't with you on Thanksgiving. And that's pretty much all I can say for now. Hi, good morning. I'm Bailey. Audrey on Tinder and a few other names because I have warrants. But this really isn't about me. This is about Sydney. And I'm just kind of want to tell you. What I've already told the Lincoln police more than one time. I met her on a Tuesday. We drove around Lincoln, smoked weed, had a great time. We hit it off. I dropped her off at home, picked her up the next night at her house. We drove around, smoked weed again, made our way to my house where we smoked wax and shatter, and I gave her a quarter ounce of some really good weed. I went to take her home, and she asked me to drop her off at a friend's house, so I did so. I gave her my number. We were planning to go to the casino that weekend. I mean, I haven't heard from her since. I really don't even know what else to say. I've been seeing all this stuff on the news presses and the magazines and the news. And I just, I guess I just want the family to know that I'm truly sorry and I didn't have anything to do with this. And I hope that Sydney is found very soon. She is a sweet, amazing girl. The video sparked a firestorm on the Facebook page, inspiring outrage, speculation, and accusations from the followers. Later that same day, Audrey posted another video. Officers in this investigation have the people of Wilbur scared to death. Uh, they don't understand. They didn't know that people like us were living next to them. What the hell is people like us? People with criminal histories? Did you check my criminal history? Forgery. Bad checks theft. That's it. I mean, not saying I'm a nice guy. I'm a crook. I'm a thief. I've been all my life. Okay? But I'm not what you're trying to make me out to be. FBI agent Mike Maseth had spent all day on the 29th trying to locate Aubrey and Bailey before heading home after a long day. But just before midnight, he learned the couple had posted a second video and immediately went back to the office to try and track them down. After reaching out to Facebook to gather emergency information, he was able to locate the IP address the video had been posted from and connected it to a Verizon wireless number. Using data provided by the cell phone carrier, they managed to narrow Bailey's phone location down to Branson, Missouri. It was then Agent Maseth put the final pieces of the puzzle together. 
he noticed in the phone records a call had been placed from Bailey's phone to a specific number in Branson, a motel called the Windmill Inn. When he contacted law enforcement in Branson, they were able to confirm the couple's car was parked outside of the motel. That's when they made their move and quickly arrested Aubrey and Bailey at 6 in the morning. Their last video attempt had led police right to their door. That evening, Lincoln police held a press conference updating the public on the search for Sydney. Her father, George, also addressed the public. On behalf of our family, I would like to uh, thank all of you, all of the people that have made the pins, made the, the flyers, uh, gotten the word out on social media, uh, all the support that, that our family has received. Continue that and uh, thank you for all of your prayers. And uh, in my opinion, someone knows something. Please, please do the right thing. Thank you. Police Chief Jeff Bleemeister then outlined their strategy for moving forward. The next steps are one with the assistance of everybody that listens to all of your outlets of where is Sydney right now? Two is as relayed by Randy, there have been arrests made and the individuals, um, excuse me, let me back up. We have been in contact and we are now have the opportunity to speak once again with Aubrey Trail and Bailey Boswell. And we'll be sending personnel down there to speak with them. As Chief Bleemeister begins to speak about Aubrey and Bailey's arrest, he catches himself and backtracks. The reason for the subtle correction was because Aubrey and Bailey weren't actually arrested in connection to Sydney's disappearance, but rather on other warrants, which conveniently allowed police access to question the two concerning Sydney. There are outstanding warrants um, for Bailey Boswell for possession of some type of narcotic, um, I don't know off the top of my head. And then there is a Saline County uh, District Court warrant for Aubrey Trail for possession of a firearm by a prohibited person. But nothing Sydney related? That, that is correct. That, they're persons of interest in this investigation. We want to talk to them because as they have stated in their Facebook posts to all of you and to the, to the public that they were with Sydney in a very close proximity to the last time we know that, um, where she was. Police now had Aubrey and Bailey in custody, but there was no sign of Sydney, and the couple continued claiming they had no idea where she was. Without any solid leads, it was up to investigator Bob Hurley to crack the case. As an Army veteran, Detective Hurley had extensive experience setting up military phone systems, gathering cell phone tower data from his time serving in Iraq. Using his experience and a new state-of-the-art methodology for phone record analysis, Hurley analyzed four cell phone records, one from Aubrey, one from Sydney, and two from Bailey. Hurley first tracked down the phones in real time, using cell tower pings to Bailey and Aubrey's apartment in Wilbur, the location where Sydney's phone was switched off and never turned on again. Signals on the following day showed the other phones pausing at a remote intersection about an hour west of Wilbur, near the small town of Edgar. If something had happened to Sydney, Hurley was convinced that this was where they needed to look. 
Like most towns in central Nebraska, the city of Edgar is small, with a population around 500 completely surrounded by endless miles of cornfields. On December 4th, nearly three weeks after Sydney disappeared, a farmer named Jonathan Smith was driving his tractor out in one of his cornfields when he suddenly saw a string of law enforcement vehicles approaching a remote intersection on a gravel road. His wife's cousin had been a friend of Sydney's. Officers were pulling up to the location Detective Hurley had pinpointed using the cell phone records and within minutes discovered what they had all feared. In a thick marsh of cattails, lay a black plastic bag containing a pair of human arms with very distinct tattoos, Sydney's tattoos. Over the next 24 hours, more than 50 officers conducted an extensive foot search of the area, uncovering evidence of a crime more horrific and gruesome than investigators could have ever imagined. Along the Clay County gravel roads, Sydney Loof's body had been dismembered and disposed of in 13 separate locations. Miss Loof's body was cut into 14 pieces. Uh, we found 13 of those pieces. The, the piece of her body we did not find would be the upper left arm from just above her elbow to just below her shoulder. An autopsy revealed Sydney's death was a homicide, likely caused by strangulation. Most of her internal organs were missing, and her body had been completely drained of blood. Detectives now believed Sydney's disappearance and murder wasn't simply a Tinder date gone wrong, but something much more sinister. They turned to their prime suspects, Aubrey Trail and Bailey Boswell. Before an antique coin auction in April 2017, Bailey Boswell dressed herself to the nines, a pair of high heels and stylish pants, making sure to wear a blouse that covered all of her tattoos. She looked good. She looked wealthy. Aubrey Trail was looking dapper as well, sporting a sweater vest and a chauffeur's cap. They were going for the appearance of high rollers as they sauntered into an antique auction house in York County, Pennsylvania. Aubrey even used an elegant walking cane as a ploy so he and Bailey could pose as father and daughter. Presenting a forged letter from an Iowa bank, the couple convinced the auctioneers they had a considerable amount of money and were serious players. After bidding on several very expensive coins, Bailey wrote a check for the items in the amount of $28,000. But before anyone could realize the check was bad, the pair were long gone. In reality, Bailey only had $200 in her bank account. But you might be wondering, how did this relationship even begin? Once a star athlete in the Iowa town of Leon, Bailey began her relationship with Aubrey, a man twice her age, in the fall of 2016. It didn't take long before the unconventional couple were conning, stealing, and defrauding antique dealers around the country, passing bad checks, and even simply pocketing rare coins worth thousands of dollars while one of them distracted the salesperson. In just a few short months, their Bonnie and Clyde crime spree through Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Iowa, Kansas, Utah, and Nebraska 
racked up a total value between $300,000 and $500,000. However, their biggest con of all was defrauding a Kansas couple out of $400,000. Aubrey told the couple he knew about an extremely rare coin worth more than a million dollars he'd be able to procure for them if they paid his expenses, including a trip to Paris. But the coin didn't even exist, and Aubrey and Bailey weren't alone in their schemes. They also had help from a group of women, women who believed Aubrey was a vampire with the power to hypnotize, fly and read minds, and Bailey was the queen over his coven of 12 witches. Sydney hadn't been the first woman Bailey had lured through Tinder. Anastasia Golyakova had just graduated high school in 2017. She was 18 years old. Shortly after, she matched with Bailey on Tinder, using Jenna as her profile name. As they began messaging and getting to know each other, Bailey told Anastasia she was involved with a sugar daddy and wondered if she had any interest. The idea was actually appealing to Anastasia because she'd been saving money for college and didn't want to ask her parents for help. After meeting with Aubrey and hearing the terms of the relationship, Anastasia agreed. Aubrey would pay Anastasia's rent and car insurance payments give her money for shopping sprees with Bailey, as well as an additional $200 a week in cash. She was also allowed to keep any proceeds she made helping him and Bailey sell their stolen antiques at local antique malls, a gig that would eventually bring her approximately $500 per week. In exchange, she was required to follow Aubrey's strict set of house rules, entailing Anastasia to spend at least one day a week with both him and Bailey, who she was instructed to call Daddy and Mommy or Mistress. While at their apartment, she was forbidden to wear clothing of any kind. When she wasn't with the couple, she wasn't allowed to speak to any other men and was to check in with them via text at least every three hours. If Anastasia broke any of these rules, she'd be punished severely by being beaten with a belt or forced to engage in extremely rough sex. Not long after becoming involved with the domineering couple, did they begin discussing darker topics with Anastasia, including witchcraft, murder, and torture. Conversations the teen initially assumed were simply part of role-playing, but the conversations became disturbingly real when they began planning to make a snuff film, a homemade video where they planned to torture and kill someone on camera. Their plan was to beat someone with baseball bats, breaking all of their bones before killing them. Aubrey and Bailey believed that they could sell the video for up to a million dollars. But when they revealed their plan to Anastasia, they could tell it was making her very uncomfortable. They tried to comfort her by saying they'd only do it to bad people, like rapists. Around the same time Anastasia met Bailey, another woman was being groomed by the devious couple, 20-year-old Ashley Hills. Like Anastasia, Ashley met Bailey through Tinder and was lured in with the promise of a sugar daddy relationship with Aubrey. In fact, it was Aubrey who picked up Ashley for their first date 
and brought her back to his apartment in Wilbur. During their first encounter, Aubrey explained the same strict house rules he had with Anastasia, followed by showing her photos of 12 naked women on his phone. He told her the women were his 12 witches, and she could be his 13th. Ashley Hills proved to be a much more suggestible and willing participant in their witchcraft ideas than Anastasia. In fact, Ashley believed every word, becoming convinced Aubrey the Vampire could read her thoughts and that Bailey, the Queen Witch, had powers of healing. Once Ashley had completely bought into their talk about witchcraft and sorcery, they told her she too could become a witch if she wanted. However, she'd need to murder someone and breathe in their last breath, something they said they were willing to help her accomplish. They also informed her that if she tortured that person for hours before killing them, her powers would be even stronger. Completely consumed by this bizarre new world of group sex, antique theft, and witchcraft, Ashley decided she was in. She wanted to become a witch and was willing to kill someone in order to get her powers. And with that, the threesome began making explicit plans for Ashley's first kill, selecting a woman at a Walmart to be her first victim. But for unknown reasons, they didn't follow through, and according to Bailey and Aubrey, that was okay, because they had another person in mind. Someone who'd make a much better first victim. Someone who wasn't very good at obeying the rules. Anastasia Goliakova. And they knew just the perfect time to get rid of her. On an antique trip they planned in Pennsylvania. An ideal opportunity for Ashley to kill Anastasia and then dump her body on the way. In preparation for the trip, Bailey took Ashley to a TJ Maxx in September of 2017 to buy some new clothes. But while she was in the fitting room, Ashley began to have a panic attack and suddenly snapped back into reality. The full horror and weight of what she was preparing to do suddenly hit her and she walked out of the fitting room directly over to Bailey, announcing she was done with their group. Although Aubrey and Bailey let Ashley leave without much of a fuss, even on occasion giving her money, they warned her that if she spoke about their plan to anyone, they wouldn't just kill her, they'd kill her family too, and Ashley believed them. But Ashley wouldn't be the last to leave. The following month in October, Anastasia also walked away from the cult. With their ranks now diminished, Aubrey and Bailey continued to stalk Tinder, looking for more women to boost their numbers. Success came for them on October 31st, when Bailey began messaging 21-year-old Katie Brandle. When Bailey asked her if she'd be interested in a dominant and submissive relationship, Katie agreed, but wasn't aware that Aubrey was also part of the deal. On November 1st, the women met up at a casino where Katie was unexpectedly introduced to Aubrey, who she was informed she'd be required to call Master. Bailey was blunt and told Katie if she wanted to be involved with her, Aubrey was part of the package. Despite having zero sexual interest in men, Katie was asked to massage Aubrey and be intimate with him later that night. For two weeks, Katie stayed with the couple in Wilbur engaging in similar sexual encounters while following the house rules, listening to the couple discuss torture, murder, and witchcraft. It was during that time Bailey matched with another woman on Tinder, Sydney Loof. 
On November 14th, after spending two consecutive weeks with Aubrey and Bailey, the couple dropped Katie back at her home in Omaha, the night of Bailey's first date with Sydney. In preparation for the date, Bailey and Aubrey drove to Lincoln on the 14th and checked into a Best Western motel. Phone records confirm Bailey's account of her first date with Sydney, showing the two driving around the Lincoln area before Bailey dropped Sydney back at her home. Bailey then returned to the Best Western to spend the night with Aubrey. Surveillance footage and phone records from the following day, November 15th, tell a much sinister story. At 10.30 in the morning, while Bailey sent romantic messages to Sydney, reminding her about the kiss they shared the previous evening, Aubrey and Bailey walked into a Home Depot and purchased plastic drop cloths, a hacksaw, saw blades, and tin snips before immediately purchasing a meat grinder, folding saw, and weed cutter from a nearby antique store. Right before Sydney arrived at her work on the 15th, Aubrey and Bailey drove past Sydney's apartment and then to Menard's, where they knew she was starting her shift at noon. Just four minutes after Sydney walked through the front door, Aubrey followed behind her. Security cameras later revealed Aubrey and Sydney passing each other in the store. Aubrey can be seen glancing over his shoulders to get a look at her. At this point, Sydney had no clue who Aubrey Trail was, but that was about to change. As Aubrey and Bailey pulled out of the Menards parking lot, that's when Bailey sent Sydney the message asking her how her day was going. While Sydney was at work, Aubrey and Bailey returned to Wilbur where they purchased hefty trash bags and bottles of Clorox bleach. They now had all the tools they needed to execute their plan later that night. Around 6 p.m., Bailey left Wilbur and drove to Lincoln where she picked up Sydney just before 7. The two women then drove to Bailey's apartment where phone records indicate Sydney's phone was switched off and never turned on again. It's likely we'll never know exactly what happened to Sydney Loof when she arrived at the apartment in Wilbur, Nebraska. All we know for certain is that she was choked to death, dismembered, and that her remains were then strewn along backcountry roads in black trash bags the following day. The apartment where it all happened had been so thoroughly cleaned, there wasn't a single piece of DNA evidence placing Sydney there. This fact, coupled with the tools and supplies Aubrey and Bailey purchased before meeting Sydney that night, suggested her murder was more carefully planned, coordinated, and executed. Aubrey and Bailey remained in jail on fraud charges for months until it was announced in June 2018 they were being charged for the murder of Sidney Loof. Just over a year later, in June 2019, Aubrey Trail's trial began. He pled not guilty to charges of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder, but entered a plea of guilty for improper disposal of a body. Throughout Aubrey's interrogation interviews, and even during his own testimony at trial, his story about what happened the night of Sydney's disappearance continued to change over and over again, making it a difficult task for prosecution to decipher exactly what they thought happened to Sydney. Early in the trial, 
one of the most bizarre incidences of the entire case took place. While the prosecution was interviewing a witness, Aubrey yelled out in court just before slashing his throat with an unknown object. Please be seated. Bailey is innocent and I curse you all. His wound wasn't fatal, but Aubrey missed the rest of his trial until it was time for him to testify in his own defense. Finally, Aubrey took the stand with a very prominent fresh scar on his neck and changed his story once more. Sidney Loof died that night, and I've got quite the extensive criminal history. Bailey's on bond. I'm wanted in two states. So later down the road, I come up with a story to try to protect me and her, you know, mostly her, but because it was only me, Bailey, and Sydney there the night Sydney died. And uh, I'll get into how it happened, I guess. But, but no, there was no two other girls there. There was no sexual fantasy. There was no $15,000 paid for a sexual fantasy. There was no $5,000 offered to Sydney Louf to participate in the sex. There was $5,000 set there, and Sydney was told that, hey, you can make this money and you can make your life better by, you know, being with us and participating in our lifestyle again. But there was no, there was no sexual fantasy per se. There was no other women there. There was, there was none of that. That was total fabrication on my part. This time he admitted to killing Sydney, although he claimed her death was an accident, the tragic result of rough erotic asphyxiation by an extension cord during consensual sex. Aubrey testified that while Bailey and Sydney were being intimate, he took turns choking each of them. He then claimed, while Sydney was being choked, she had a seizure and died. When asked why he didn't call 911, he said that it was a bad decision in hindsight. Was on hindsight, it would have probably been a really good idea, but you know, I'm I'm not looking at things like that at the time. I mean, uh, it's not an excuse, but I mean, I'm a I'm a criminal. I'm thinking like a criminal. I mean, I've got eight ball of coke for Bailey. I've got that in the house. We've got weed in the house. But more than that, I mean, I'm wanted in uh, Utah. Uh, my criminal history. Who's going to believe Trail's got a dead girl in his bed and it was an accident? Nobody's going to believe that. So on hindsight, it was a really bad, bad decision, but it's one I own. I mean, I, I did it. I have to live with it. When Aubrey was asked whether Bailey was involved in Sydney's death, Aubrey put the full blame on himself. I mean, I am the one that caused Sydney's death. I'm the one that choked Sydney. So I guess to answer that, as far as causing Sydney to die, no. Bailey had nothing to do with it. Although the prosecution had no direct evidence to prove what really happened to Sydney that night, the tools, drop cloths, and trash bags were all signs of obvious preparation and planning. Enough to convince the jury Sydney's death was no accident during rough sex, but rather premeditated murder. It only took the jury two and a half hours to reach guilty verdicts of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn, do well and truly try and true deliverance make between the state of Nebraska and Aubrey C. Trail, the defendant, do find said defendant as to the charge of count one murder in the first degree guilty 
of murder in the first degree by purposely and with deliberate and premeditated malice killing Sidney Lou on, about, or between November 15th and or 16th, 2017 in the County of Saline, state of Nebraska. Aubrey is now facing the death penalty and is scheduled for sentencing in June of this year. Jury selection for Bailey's trial began in September 2020 after lengthy delays. The court heard most of the same testimony that had been presented in Aubrey's trial, including witness testimony from Ashley Hills, Anastasia Golyakova, and Katie Brandel. The defense attempted to paint Bailey as just as much of a victim as the other women who testified, saying she'd been lured in, deceived, and preyed upon by Aubrey Trail. But in the end, the jury wasn't convinced. Guilty of murder in the first degree by purposely and with deliberate and premeditated malice, killing Sidney Luth. Bailey is now facing the death penalty and is scheduled to be sentenced later this year. If she receives the death penalty, she'll be the first woman in Nebraska's history to be placed on death row. At the home of Susie and George Louvre in Neely, Nebraska, a collection of angel statuettes is displayed prominently. Gifts given to them by family and friends at Sydney's memorial service. The angels are a reminder of the young woman who used to laugh so hard it made her cough uncontrollably, causing everyone else around her to laugh as well. The girl who loved the outdoors and could outfish her father and brother, who hated doing dishes so much she would pay her younger sister to do them for her, and who called her older brother to pick her up whenever she accidentally ran her car out of gas on more than one occasion. Sydney's friends, family, and co-workers all described a woman who made the world around her a better place, a poster person for caring more about others than herself. In the wake of this incredible tragedy, Sydney's mother Susie has some simple advice for parents, saying that all the cliches about parenting are true. Please love your children. Pray for them every day. Take every opportunity to spend time with them. Live every moment as if it were your last. Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, 
The closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E. I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run